0: Hello and welcome to lucky episode number 13 of the Grumpy Collector podcast. I'm your host, Troy McHenry, an incurable collector of all things. On this week's episode, I'm going to discuss a recent story I had published on Charlie Dunn's fantastic website, strictlyvintagewatches.com, all about la Lecourt Parisian lamppost clocks. I'll be reading it and embellishing it with comments and side stories, so think of this as almost an audio book, but with behind-the-scenes commentary. The story took me over six months of research and writing, so I hope you enjoy it. The show notes will include a link to the story, which I strongly suggest you check out, since there's a ton of visual info and period ads that you won't get from just hearing me read the story. Remember, you can find these show notes and more at thegrumpycollector.com. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe to the show on your streaming platform of choice and give us a five-star review. It really does make a difference. And without further ado, yeah, your life just got better. First of all, thank you for all the kind words about episode 12 around watch storage. Um, That was a really fun one to record. Something I've definitely spent a lot of time thinking about. Um, yeah, just really appreciate all the, all the comments. Hope everyone enjoyed that and checked out the links as well. Um, you know, protect that investment. You'll notice a glow with the grump today since Red Bar Raleigh met uh, yesterday. I'm recording this on a Monday, so we met actually a Sunday at noon at a, a sidebar, a wonderful cocktail lounge in downtown Cary, North Carolina. And we had just such an amazing turnout. And I love, as one of the co-leaders of the, of the chapter, I just love when we see so many new faces. You know, old faces are great too. <laughs> but it's great seeing new people who found us on Instagram and then have come out to a meeting. Uh, or maybe even better is when you see the face for a second time. Because then you know, wow, you know, they came out last time. They must have really liked it because here they are again. If you're listening to this and you're not part of a in-person watch club, whether that's a Red Bar chapter or, or something else, definitely encourage you to try to seek those out. Uh, obviously, the NAWCC also has chapters everywhere. The which is the National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors. You can check out their website. Check out the Red Bar uh, Global website as well, and hopefully, you can find um, a club near you where you can go and share in this predominantly crazy hobby uh, around uh, collecting watches that all of us seem to share. Also super exciting uh, news just around all the great watch events happening in October. I I teased about this in uh, the last episode too, but uh, October Watch Week, which I'm kind of dubbing it from October 19th through 23rd in New York City Uh, Wednesday through maybe midday Friday is all Red Bar global meetup stuff. Watch Time, the magazine, has their New York City event Friday night and then all day Saturday and Sunday. Wind Up Watch Fair, New York City, is happening Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. The Horological Society of New York is doing events on, I think, Thursday and Friday or Wednesday and Friday. Uh, which is great. I'm doing like a making one-on-one class on Friday morning. That should be loads of fun. And the uh, National Association of Watch and Clock Collectors is doing a big symposium. I think Friday, Saturday, and they're doing some event, uh, like an offsite event Sunday. So lots going on. Risk check for this episode. I was going to say my tutor, uh, Pelagos, or I guess now everyone's calling them Pelagos. I, I really have a hard time with that. FXD. Uh, But I'm not going to say that because that's actually what I wore during the last episode. So I went to the watch box and pulled out my Seiko Willard. This is the first reissue of the Willard by Seiko uh, in recent times. The model number is the SLA 033. It was a limited edition when they first kind of reissued this case. And so it's one of uh, 2,500 the thing I like most about it is it doesn't have the Prospects logo on the dial. So it really looks, for all intents and purposes, very similar to the original 19 millimeter lugs. Uh, I have, it has Ratsu polishing on the case, but it has a few upgrades. Like I think the bezel is ceramic, from what I can tell. Of course, a nice sapphire crystal. I have replaced the strap on this though. You know, it originally comes on a black Seiko waffle strap, which is nice. It's like a vulcanized rubber. It's pretty soft and malleable, Uh, but I've replaced it with a green strap and the green one. I've replaced it too. I'll put a link in the show notes, but it's by strap habit. It's a quick release. It's FKM rubber Uh, again, 19 millimeters, just a really pretty shaded green and it's 26 bucks. You can't beat it. And it's, Feels amazing. I'm actually a really big fan of FKM rubber over pretty much any other type. And to me, this has kind of the same feel as those Icerfane and uh, Tropic straps. I think those are all FKM2 maybe. Um, so that's what I kind of look for now. I like something that's a little bit soft. Um, just has a great feel to it. So that's what's on the wrist today. Last episode, I tease that I had a story in the works. And I'm so glad to say it is now live on Strictly Vintage watches. Uh, I'm also extremely honored to be the first guest writer on Charlie Dunn's website as well, which I wasn't even aware of. Starting right off with interesting stories to tell about this, originally when I had looked at telling this story, I, you know, I had started collecting these lamppost clocks. I would seen them pop up on auctions and on eBay and really got interested in them. And I saw there was a lot of different varieties. And so then that just Kind of was all I needed to start uh, going down the the rabbit hole uh, about these clocks. And originally, I we, I um, shared the idea with Tony Traina of uh, Rescapement and now Houdinki and he absolutely was a huge proponent of it. Thanks, Tony. Um, but very wisely, and I'm very uh, appreciative. You know, he when I was getting closer to, to wrapping it up, he's like, "Hey, I'm." going to who and uh you know this probably you probably don't want this to be the last uh, story on my website because i'm going to kind of wind down for escapement and uh, kind of alter it a little bit and won't be a lot of new one-off journalism there because he's going to be spending off his efforts and energy focus on uh Houdinke, which i totally get um so he definitely recommended i connect with charlie who i knew and uh again it's just over the moon that I uh, Charlie um, appreciated it for what it was. And, you know, Charlie has a, a similar love as I do for all things uh, JLC. And we're both big fans of uh, small clocks. So couldn't be happier with well, where uh, the story uh, ultimately um, ended. You know, to start with, when you uh, look at the story, and, you know, I had to think about the name of it. I came up with the curious case of the Jajalocoupe lamppost clock. And again, that's just because there's so many weird and unique things about these clocks. And I can't think of another clock that has ever been made that has this much variety. I mean, think of this as your Rolex Submariner of clocks, that there's that many different iterations of these, you know, and and similar with Rolex, you can look at it from the movement standpoint, you can look at it from the case standpoint, you can look at it from the dial standpoint. So uh, and and even other uh, things. So I just think that's, um and this is what just made it so interesting. And when I was writing it, I, I was amazed that I got down to 4000 words pretty quickly. Um, also a little Easter egg in the uh, photo, uh, the lead up photo uh, for the story. One of the clocks is sitting on a, a copy of Arthur Conan Doyle's uh, "The Hound of the Baskervilles." I'm a big Arthur Conan Doyle fan. Read right? just about all the Sherlock Holmes, and also even like the White Company, which is um, not about Sherlock Holmes. It takes place actually much, much earlier, um, but it's a great book, great story too. I'm a big fan, and uh, and since I'm saying this is a curious case, kind of made me think of uh, Sherlock Holmes and the cases that he takes. So as someone who has been captivated by jaeger wrist wristwatches for a long time, check out my watch story on Houdinki if you need proof. <laughs> you know, this is what I led with. And if you haven't watched my uh, my story on Houdinki, I'll, I'll link directly to that too on uh, YouTube. It's pretty funny. Actually, there's a lot of comments on there like, Troy, why are you talking so slow? Or, uh, you know, are you on uh, some sort of uh, medicine or something? Um, you know, I purposely had talked slow for that just because uh sometimes people will tell me i talk too fast and so maybe I, I slowed it down too much i've tried to find the right rhythm with uh the podcast so let me know to uh send a comment or uh send a, send me a post or a comment on instagram at the grumpy collector tell me uh, do i speak too fast or too slow or just right uh and also, you know, I really preface this because I really do love JLC. I think most people know this. And my watch story is about my Jaeger um, LeCoultre uh, Reverso Squadron Home Time, which is a killer watch. Anyways, going back to the story, I should have known that it was only a matter of time before their long history and varied production of clocks would eventually find their way to me. With the rising cost of wristwatches, whether new, contemporary, or vintage, I found the world of smaller desk and table clocks a fun diversion to dip my toe in between watch purchases. Of course, when you think Jaeger-LeCoultre and clocks, the first thing that comes to mind is their famous Atmos carriage or mantle-style clocks. The idea of a perpetual clock that is wound by minuscule changes in temperature is pretty hard to pass up. I ended up buying an Atmos clock a few years ago at an auction near my house. It had a plaque for a 40 years of service anniversary for an employee at AMC. Not the meme stock but American Motor Company, maker of such timeless models like the Pacer and Gremlin. Unfortunately, the bellows in my clock, the small bladder that expands and contracts with temperature changes, had a leak. So it's never kept accurate time except twice a day. And while there are several clockmakers that specialize in restoring Atmos clocks to their former glory, the relative high cost and limited warranty of the aftermarket parts hasn't exactly made me want to green light the repair just yet. (laughs) So funny side note about my Atmos clock that I did include in the story. I didn't want to go off on a tangent about it, but you know, again, when I I bought it, it had this plaque that had two screws into the base of the Atmos clock and I took it off and then I saw those holes there. So I'm like, well, what am I going to do about this? Uh, and I flipped it over and I saw it's plain. And I guess, normal person would be like, oh, I'll just flip it and screw it back in, and it's just a plain piece of metal. Um, instead, I took it to an engraver, and I was like, oh, let's get this engraved. Um, and I was thinking, what would I want to engrave on it? And <laughs> I landed on um, the tombstone for Royal Tenenbaum from the movie, The Royal Tenenbaums. Uh, so it has my name, and my date of birth, um, thankfully not my death yet. Uh, but then underneath it, it says, um, die tragically rescuing his family from the wreckage of a destroyed, sinking battleship. So, that's what's engraved on my Atmos clock right now, as we speak. <laughs> okay, going back to the story. Slightly discouraged, I settled on to the idea of getting a smaller, more traditional, mechanical power table clock. Many great ones by Jaeger LeCoultre feature their renowned eight-day movements, requiring it to be wound only once a week. After looking at various tattered leather Travel clocks and floating mystery dial and inline movement clocks. I discovered the lamppost series of clocks by Jaeger LeCoultre. They're not hard to miss, fairly ubiquitous on eBay, and they also pop up from time to time in the catalogs of the larger horological auction houses like Antiquorum. Originally marketed as the gaslight clock, what I've come to realize is they are singularly unique to the Maison and among small clocks. They have also been very illustrative or illustrative of Jacques Coult's history during the 1960s, and as I later discovered, hold a wealth of mysteries and surprises unto themselves. What stood out to me when I first encountered one of these clocks was the little blue street sign attached. I'd surmise a full 95% plus of the clocks feature the Parisian street, Rue de la Paix. A direct translation would be Street of Peace or Peace Street. I first thought the street sign was perhaps a subtle, not-so-subtle reminder of jacques le location in the city. Last time I was in Paris, which this was right before COVID, I remember walking the streets with my wife and visiting the jacques le boutique at 7 Place Vendôme. So why Rue de la Paix? Did jacques le have a boutique there at one point? The street Rue de la Paix does turn into Place Vendôme after all. From all my research, the answer is no. The street has no specific significance for Jage Lecourt. But instead, the clocks with the Rue de la Paix street sign were really just thought of as a quintessential parish. Much like having a clock with Rodeo Drive could spark memories of Beverly Hills. Rue de la Paix was also uh, was the original street in Paris for couture fashion and jewelry. Interestingly, the street is also known as Cartier's Ancestral Home at 13 Rue de la Paix. They've been there since 1899. Makes me chuckle that it could be thought of as free advertising for a competitor, but now both are part of the Richmond Group. A shopping advertisement below attests to the street's significance. For Paris tourists, a reminder of the famous street and shopping district seems a relevant souvenir. It's important to also note These were made in a time before Jaeger LeCoultre had boutiques, so most purchases would have been through an authorized retailer. So the question presented itself. Did a particular JLC retailer on Rue de la Paix have these clocks commissioned? Again, from all my research, all signs point to no. I'll tell you in the next couple pictures, um, one is an old advertisement, I think from the 1920s or 30s of Rue de la Paix, and it's interesting to look and see what ads are there for what companies. And you know, what stands out to me is some of them are like furs and perfumes, and none of them ring bells for me today, except you'll notice in there on the right hand side is uh Van Cleef and Arpel, so uh, they've definitely uh, been uh, around for quite some time. And then, of course, there's a couple of different pictures of the clocks, including um, an early prototype that's probably a little bit more ornate than what JLC ultimately wanted to do to try to mass produce these. Looking at advertisements during the time period for these clocks confirms the same sentiment that the clock's street plaque was just to invoke general Paris emotions. I love the ad copy, A Touch of Paris, and Design with Imagination and Taste. I couldn't agree more. When you go through the past 20 years of auction results the other recurring street names start to become clear and can really be grouped into two categories paris-based streets and other streets across the globe it's important to note that all the other names came later based upon and building on the success of the original gaslight clocks that all featured exclusively rue de la paix at the beginning notable Paris street names That made later appearances on these clocks include Avenue Victor Hugo, Rue Jean d'Arc, Place de l'Opéra, Rue de la Fonbourg Saint-Honoré, Place de la Concorde, and Rue Royale. All these later Parisian street names are exceedingly rare and similar to the more common Rue de la Paix are general street names, i.e. no specific street or house number is given which makes sense since they were meant to be street signs. However, one notable, mysterious recurring exception occurs that includes a specific street number, which is 208 Avenue de Versailles. I have spent more time than I care to admit trying to figure out why this particular address was produced. Unfortunately, today it's a modern building and a parking deck. Going through old French business listings, believe me, I did, which was crazy. The address was once a girls' school, and later it appears to have been the location of a small shopping center. I had to do tons of Google Archive searches to even come up with these little nuggets. My best guess is a jeweler and JLC retailer uh, that was located at this address had them commissioned. And there's a slight hint to it uh, that there was at that address um, something called uh, Crétale, um, which I believe was a kind of like an early, maybe um, little indoors uh, shopping center or a little mall with, with different stores and boutiques. The non-Paris-based street names are quite varied. Everything from Wall Street and Bourbon Street in New Orleans in the United States, to supposedly ones for Portobello Road in London and Hamburg's uh, R- 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 Reaperbahn also exist. Excuse all my pronunciations here, by the way. I even found an example where the street sign was replaced with the name of an employee for uses in a word award. Congrats to Edward Kasuf, the Hiram Walker Line Builders Award winner of 1964. As an aside, Boss Award. By the way, here in Walker and Sons Distillery. Too bad more companies don't do things like that. The only other non-street reference I found is one with a Coca-Cola logo. I have no idea of its authenticity or if it was done as a later modification. As an update to this article, I've seen two signs that just had roses on them too on a, with a pale blue background. No idea um, what that's um, signaling or, or referring to. Beyond the assortment of street names, there's incredible diversity in a number of factors when it comes to these clocks. Take, for instance, the color of the actual lamppost, most commonly found in black lacquer, but they can also be found in green lacquer and polished gold plated. The black and green ones offer gilt trim highlights where the gold ones are trimmed in black. I've heard rumors of a wine red lamppost clock as well, but haven't been able to verify its existence. Looking at an early advertisement, only black and green are mentioned. The polished gilt gold ones came later during the overall production run. Beyond the three available colors of the actual lamppost, the lamp shade itself, always made of plastic, can be found in three different colors. On the black and green lampposts, it's always an opaque, w- opaque, excuse me, white or cream color. However, on the later gold ones, a clear lampshade was introduced along with the opaque ones. Personally, I prefer the opaque ones since it keeps the fantasy alive while the transparent one unveils uh, how uh, these clocks are constructed, which we'll go into later. And this is a good point. When you see the gold ones with that clear lampshade, you see the rod going straight up from the clock to the top of the of the lamppost. To me, it just kind of kills the the mystery and intrigue of these clocks. I definitely prefer the opaque ones uh, that are the more common as well. When I first started learning about these clocks, my first questions were actually, when were they made and how many? And discussing this with uh, Laurent, Senior Product and Heritage Manager at Jaja LeCoultre and his team. I'm not going to say his last name because I'll just butcher it. Uh, The exact number made is unfortunately lost to history. Uh, Their records just don't have a lot of um, details around this, especially like production records. However, looking over past catalogs does help shed light on when these were produced. This really was our only thing to go by was old ads and old catalogs from their archives. The first occurrence is in a Jaeger uh, catalog or Jaeger catalog dated 1959 and is mentioned as a Rue de la Paix alarm clock. That same year, it also debuted in a Jaeger-LeCoultre catalog. There, it shares the same uh, Jaeger-signed dial. However, it is referred to as a uh, Bec de Gaz or gas lamp clock. These clocks appear in catalogs continuously from 1959 Till 1970. There's no mention of them from 1971 through 1973, and they make one last appearance in the 1974 catalogs before disappearing for good. So really with that, you can think of it as that these clocks were made for a 15-year run uh, from 1959 through 1974. This time period is interesting for any Jaeger-LeCoultre collector, clocks or watches, because the Maison was using three different names depending on the market and time period, which means there is diversity in the dials as well. In the United States, they were branded as LeCoultre, while in Europe and the rest of the world is uh, Jaeger or Jaeger-LeCoultre. If that's not enough, one recently appeared on eBay with a dial marked for the German jeweler, um, Gublin, which I own. Uh, What all these dials do have in common is they are all printed with Roman numerals in black and the dial is cream in color. That being said, there's one singular example I found of a different dial color, which was sold by Christie's back in 2008, which features a red lacquer dial marked Jaeger LeCoultre with white printed Roman numerals and apparently loom plots, given the dots, Uh, you know, around all the Roman numerals. And at the very bottom of the dial, uh, T Swiss T markings, uh, which signifies tritium. This clock is also the title holder for the most expensive lamppost clock uh, since it sold for approximately $8,800, nearly three times its high estimate. And then there's a picture of the clock. It is beautiful, that gorgeous red dial um It's the 24-hour um, uh, with day-night indicator movement, and it's uh, green, which really is the, the rarest color of these clocks. Uh, black's the most common, then the, the brass or, or gold, and then the, the green is, is the rarest. Uh, we talk a little bit about the movements. There's some uh, screenshots from some catalogs here. Going back to the article. Besides differences in colors and appearance of these clocks, movement-wise, there were several different ones offered throughout the years, everything from time only to 12-hour alarm movements to 24-hour alarm movements with a day-night indicator. These are typically marked uh, recital on the dial. Most have an 8 in a circle near 6 o'clock, indicating that the movement has an 8-day power reserve. If that wasn't hard enough to keep track of, There were several different iterations of these movements used throughout the production run. Let's start with the most basic model, the manual wind time only. These clocks tend to be designated as model or reference 397 or later 457. The movement typically found in these is a caliber 245. Famously, while the dial is mentioning a power reserve of eight days, you know, that little eight in the circle, these movements typically can go up to 10 days between winding, sometimes even more, um, Funny enough, even when you look at the Reverso watches that JLC has made that are manual wind with a um, eight-day power reserve movement, I'm thinking in particular like the, uh, the Grand dates that have come out, um, those kind of famously also run for longer than eight days. So it's kind of interesting that um, uh, JLC kind of uh, maybe under-promises and over-delivers. The 12-hour alarm models are listed as model reference 45. The alarm or uh, reveal movement uh, used is the caliber 219. These are easier spots since the alarm is set and shown with a stick hand. And I'll tell you from my research, this is another aside, um, the 12-hour alarm models are probably the rarest from a mechanical standpoint. I didn't say this in the article, but it definitely is. Time only is the most common. Then uh, the various varieties of the 24-hour Um, but the the rarest is definitely that twelve hour. It and it's no surprise why. And the twelve hours is the least useful (laughs) to to be honest. Uh because when you set that alarm, you know, if it's you're setting it at six AM and you're setting it for um, you know, seven, it's gonna ring at seven AM. Uh but if it's six a.m. and you're setting it for uh five, it's gonna ring at five p.m. you know. Uh you can't set it for more than twelve hours in advance which is really limiting, honestly. It works fine as an alarm clock if you're going to bed um, at 8 p.m. You're probably not going to sleep 12 hours, so you can always set it. and It works for that. But um, if you want to set an alarm for further out than 12 hours, say like tomorrow, you know, let's say 16 hours from now, you, you're really just sunk unless you have the 24-hour model. Then we show uh, just the different dials, just close-ups them so you can really see You know, lastly, the more modern and useful 24-hour alarm or recital models are listed as uh, model reference 107. The caliber used in these are all different iterations of the caliber 240. Uh, When looking at the movement, it's not uncommon to see the movement listed as uh, 240-1, 240-2, and 240-3, denoting the iterations. Instead of a hand for showing the time set for the alarm, it's a 24-hour wheel that is turned from the back and is shown to the user by means of a cutout on the dial, either at 12 o'clock originally and then later that cutout got moved to 6 o'clock at the bottom of the dial. The clock even has an AM-PM indicator uh, as shown as a little disc uh, behind the hands that rotates. It's half black and half uh, white. Unlike JLC Memovox wristwatches, you know, when the alarm is wound, it, you know, does not use up, all the power, and sound once. You know, that's exactly how a memovox works. You, you wind it, you set the alarm, and when the alarm goes off, it uses that whole power reserve you gave it to, to sound that alarm. Instead, a full wind of the alarm mainspring is, because remember, these are clocks, a full wind of the alarm mainspring is good for 14 daily 10-second alarms. And then we show a few more highlights from the 240 movement, such as it's a movement and alarm wound by single key. The key is built in, it just folds in and out. Automatic alarm ringing every 24 hours. Power reserve for 14 10-second rings. And a facility on certain models for stopping alarm instantaneously by hand with automatic release for the next alarm ring. Um, These clocks don't have that. Means of stopping automatic alarm ringing for an indefinite period. That's kind of a, a pause feature. I believe these do have that. Ownership. Seeing one of these in person is quite a treat since they are almost a foot tall. And when you pick one up, they're impossibly heavier than you'd imagine. The same thing I've heard told to people who pick up an Academy Award uh, for the first time, you know, the Oscars. The base and post are all of solid metal. Winding the clocks is straightforward with using a flange that folds out of the way, that folding key we talked about earlier, uh, when not needed, but can be flipped out to help turn and wind the mainspring uh, and the alarm. The movements being more clock than watch are fairly robust and problem-free. However, there is a fundamental weakness in the design. The way the clock is designed, there are three main parts of the clock. The case for the movement, which also contains the crystal, and it has one threaded hole on the top and bottom of the clock case. You know, Think of it as that middle round part. Um, two, the top elements, including the lamp, Uh, The finial elements are slid over a short metal rod and the very top of the clock screws in to keep everything nice and tidy. Uh, There's a great picture I took of all the parts kind of disassembled and expanded, deconstructed um, with the rod in that particular order. Uh, And then three, the bottom portion of the lamppost, which is the heavy base and main post trunk of the clock. And that's a pretty basic piece. It's really, you have the base and then the pole. They kind of screw together. Uh, but that's there's only really two parts there. Uh, and it connects to the uh, the bottom of the clock case, just above the sign with a small threaded screw. The reason for this design is it would be impossible to have a long metal rod run from the top to the bottom of the clock uh, since the movement would be in the way. You can't just have one rod hold everything together. That would be ideal. But again, you have a really complicated clock movement uh, in the middle that gets in the way. Um, The problem that exists then is because of the considerable weight of the base and the torque that is required to wind the clock. If the owner holds it from the base and then winds the clock, which it does feel natural to do, it puts too much lateral force on the small screw that holds the top two parts of the clock to the base. It's not uncommon for the screw to break or become unscrewed at the base of the clock's movement, making the top have a rakish tilt. I've seen quite a few of these where they just kind of wobble around because of this. To fix this, the back of the movement must be removed. Then two retainer clips unscrewed, the movement removed, and then the screw can be tightened. It's not an easy job. I'm speaking from experience. I've done this a couple times and it's a total pain in the butt. Um, and it's even harder to get a good uh, force down actually to to get good purchase to um, tighten the screw again. Interestingly, one of mine, uh, when I took it apart because it was wobbling a little bit, um, they had you could tell from an earlier repair they had a problem with the screw as well. and so instead of the screw, there's like a piece of metal that then was pounded to kind of expand to kind of tighten it up, and it still didn't work. Um, you know, to fix this, the back of the movement, yeah, again it's just not easy. So, you know, when assessing to purchase one of these clocks, ask if the top wobbles at all. If it does, you may be looking at a costly repair. Not impossible for someone to do, but again, not something uh, that's super easy either. You really got to take your time with it. And then I show an example of what I mean with this, um, with one of these being um, bent. And then I show a picture of examples where the parts that make up the lamp portion, the top part above the actual clock face, uh, are out of sequence. Because again, all of those just fit on a threaded rod and then you, you screw on the top and you're good to go. Since the designer amounts the thread on the rod to make up the top part of the clock, the lamp portion are all free-floating, the top can be unscrewed and the pieces mixed up from the correct order. The good news is this, however, is an easy fix. Just unscrew the top, remove the pieces, rearrange them, uh, as with the some of the other photos in this article. Um, and even the deconstructed one can really help you through that, um, you know, into their correct order, slide them back onto the clock. In turn, this is something that's a, a good way to get a lamp at a discount, since through the years, it seems these pieces can get mixed up, which may scare off um, other potential buyers away. It also makes for a fun online game to see how many for sale listings can you spot where the pieces of the lamp in the wrong sequence, uh, such as the, the four poor beauties that we, we show here in the article. I actually just saw a a fifth one the other day on eBay. I was like, oh man, uh, concerning market prices. These clocks were originally retailed for a whopping $29.95, $29.95. And, um, you know, taking a typical year in the middle of their production cycle, say 1965 and accounting for inflation, The price today would be $281.70. Still not a bad deal if you think about it. Um, This means while not inexpensive, they weren't super expensive either. In turn, these lamppost clocks can show up at any yard sale or small auction and routinely routinely show up on eBay, where at any given time, uh, there may be three to six for sale. And honestly, this is another aside. I can't stress this enough. I mean, that's what I love about uh, collecting, especially watches and clocks. Is, you know, if you were collecting minute repeaters or, um, you know, some sort of perpetual calendar wristwatches, those were always expensive and rare. And in turn, you're probably not going to see those pop up at a garage sale. You know, families probably knew what they had from the very initial purchase of that. And so those are going to live a rarefied life their whole existence. But for these clocks, because they just started off less than thirty dollars, they were brought home as kind of I don't want to say forgettable souvenirs, but you know just souvenirs. And so you these do really pop up just everywhere. And I think ultimately JLC probably made a lot of these, um, you know, relatively speaking. So they're they're definitely out there, and there may be some other. Iterations or versions we don't know about, uh, which are, you know, yet to be discovered, which would be really exciting. I documented all the sales of these lamppost clocks for the past 12 years across all auction websites, Christie's, Sotheby's, Bonham's, Antiquorum, Live Auctioneers, eBay, etc., including name on the dial, post color, movement type, and source where it was sold. Adjusting for inflation, I wanted to test and see these clocks going up or down in value, and which attributes should a collector consider when making a purchase. Above, you can see some of the completed lots plotted by price over time, and in this case, taking into account if the name on the dial was marked uh, Jaeger, or Jaeger, or Uh, Lacoutre. Jaeger-marked clocks have been holding their value slightly better than Lacoutre-marked clocks and appear to command a higher value, but some that is driven by outlier sales. This is probably more of a function of the LeCoultre ones overwhelmingly being sold at smaller U.S.-based auctions and through eBay. Uh, Looking at the entire data set again, you can derive the following data points. Uh, By movement, the average price for a time-only clock today is $726. The average price for the 24-hour alarm is $892, so about $150 more uh, than a time-only and the average price for a 12-hour alarm, it just wasn't enough data points. I think the, the 12-hour alarms with the stick hand for the alarm hand, uh, function, is they're hard to find. So I wasn't willing to, to put a price out. There's just I think there was only a handful of data points I had collected over the last uh, decade. You know, by lamp color, average price for black, again, this is like the post color, um, $724 for black, $703 for the gilt or gold fifteen hundred and eight dollars for green so over twice the price for green again green really is the the hardest color to come by and then by auction source you know auction house 9 hundred twenty eight dollars eBay and again this is just based on sold listings not what people have listed them for uh, or, or completed but sold four hundred and fifteen dollars so in turn if you're looking for a deal leverage those saved searches on eBay because the average price for a clock on eBay is less than half the price of a similar clock that could be sold at an auction house. In closing, while I consider myself first and foremost a watch collector, it's been fun dipping my toe into clock waters and in the process gaining a far deeper appreciation uh, for one of my favorite brands, Jaja LeCoultre. While I don't think you're going to see me lecturing at an NAWCC symposium anytime soon on JLC Clocks, I have grown a deeper appreciation for our clock collecting brethren. I can't help but think with Jaeger-LeCoultre's flagship boutique, firmly established in Paris, perhaps the time is right to reissue a version of the lamppost clock, but with the street sign proudly stating their current address, number 7 Place Vendôme. Much like the reason for these clocks' existence in the first place to rekindle at a glance that love affair with Paris, one can dream, oui? Further lamppost clock diversions. While the world of jaeger Le lamp lamppost clocks is incredibly diverse, as you've seen, uh, for the limited time they were manufactured, the rabbit hole can go even deeper. For instance, there are some really fascinating prototypes. Uh, did they ever even make it into production? That are worth additional scholarship, as well as other brands that introduce similar lamppost style clocks. Copycats, perhaps? Um, you know, the closest thing to an actual Jage lamppost clock was uh there was a full-size one uh made that was outside the jazza boutique in uh um, buenos aires argentina i thought that was pretty neat there might be other ones around it near other boutiques too i would love to to figure that out may need to go on street view and look at all the uh, boutiques at some point see what's around <laughs> um and then we have some pictures of other mid-century lamppost clocks um and these were all ones uh uh, by uh, JLC. So it's really interesting to see kind of the different styles. Actually, the first one is not, I think that's actually a marked in Hermes. Uh, and the other one is a, is another kind of no name brand, but then we have the prototype. And then there's actually, there's two prototypes from, uh, from uh, JLC uh, shown there. And then Charlie and I had a lot of fun digging through and finding old uh, ads and marketing materials along with um, uh JLC, again, really helped with um, providing uh, ads from their archive as well. And I'll tell you one thing I do want to point out. There's one of these I think that is for sale right now, but it's a little pricey. But I shouldn't say this because now these are going to go up in value too. But um, the reference, I think it's the um, 399. Um, I think it's the coolest clock. It's called a, um, a game or hunter's clock and uh it has uh 12 indices for the 12 hours but then in between it has uh, months and it shows like maybe what's the ideal animal to hunt for that month and i just think uh it's kind of whimsical um in, in a way i just think it's super endearing uh we really do have a quite a depth of ads here and it's great too that we have them from even like domestic ads that were published um in uh, U.S. uh, publications. And then we even have some that were in uh, Europe and uh, South America uh, and even some foreign language ones, which I think is uh, really cool. And uh, I forgot, there's even one here for the Japanese market from 1968 that Charlie found. So super cool. Acknowledgements, you know, while we tend to think of everything exists online for the materials and research required for this article, that was decidedly not the case. I would like to thank Tony Trainer for giving me the initial encouragement when I shared my idea of telling the story of these unusual clocks. Uh, the product marketing managers and heritage directors at uh, for their enthusiasm and valuable help, including uh, Matthew uh, Soret, uh, Laurent, thank you, um, and um, Ellen, watch collector and fellow Jaj uh, LeCoute enthusiast uh, Bloman uh, from the Bloman Watch Report who really did blaze a trail in the initial online documentation of these endearing uh, clocks uh, predominantly on purist pro, but I think maybe even like on um, time zone or um, uh, watch uh, you seek. Uh, thanks also go to Serge uh, Mallard at Europastar and uh, Liam uh, Bolland at fellows for opening up their archives for me to explore. Typically you have to pay to, to do that. They let me, I dip in for free, uh, you know, for a brief period of time just to see if there was anything um, useful for this story. And lastly, to Charlie Dunn for his mutual passion for all things JLC, graciously supporting this effort and offering his platform passion and expertise to help me tell this story. Um, Again, you can find me uh, on Instagram at the Grumpy Collector and, of course, my podcast, which you're listening to right now. And then, uh, yeah, definitely uh, very passionate about uh, Red Bar and our Raleigh chapter. I love my uh, uh, Raleigh peeps. And um, I am one of the newest members of the Horological Society of New York and the National uh, Association of Watch and Clock Collectors. Both I'd been thinking about and been on the fence for a long time. And I decided, you know what, I am really passionate about this. This is my main hobby. And uh, so I'm going to go deep. And became a member of both, and I'm glad I I did. So that is the end of the article. I hope you enjoyed uh, this kind of reading of it with uh, some side stories. I know sometimes that can be a lot to read too, and also sometimes it's hard, even when reading it, to really understand maybe the intonation or or what I was thinking when I was writing it. So hopefully, hearing me speak it, even with uh, some of my uh, flubs, useful for all of you. Of course, I love feedback, so. Please again uh, send me something on Instagram about uh, what you thought of it, and um, you know I'm already starting to noodle on what's maybe the next thing I want to um, you know write and tell. You know I love uncovering these things and just kind of documenting for all collectors to benefit from. What are these kind of hidden stories that are out there? I think there's loads of them uh, just waiting to be discovered. I really feel like this was this was one of them. <music> I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Reminder, the show notes are online at thegrumpycollector.com. If you know a fellow incurable collector that you think I should interview, drop me a line at my Instagram page, at thegrumpycollector. I'm always on the lookout for collectors of all things with that common thread of watches. If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. Lastly, there won't be another episode until after Watch Week NYC, so look for the next episode around the end of October, Maybe early November if I'm feeling lazy. Uh, We'll see. Until next time, keep collecting, and I'll see you on Instagram. Bye-bye.